This morning, uh, we, were, we will be continuing our sermon series in the book of James, which the sermon series is titled Practical Faith. So the book of James is actually one of my personal favorite books in the Bible, if you can have one of those. And one of the reasons why I love it is because it is through imagery that he helps to convey ideas across. And his imagery helps me better understand what he is trying to say. And I also find that this letter is comforting, but it is also convicting at the same time. So this week we will be jumping into chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And when you get to this passage, you will see that the heading in your Bible say, Faith and Deeds or Faith and Works. But I think that even before we jump into the passage, that we need, we need to remind ourselves back to the first chapter that we we're talking about, that it is through faith, through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that we receive the forgiveness of sins. And through the resurrection of Jesus, that we receive the newness of life. So in James chapter 1, verse 21, it states, Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word that is planted in you, which can save you. The word planted in them, in us, is the good news. It is the gospel message through faith in Jesus. Those who repent of their sins, who entrust their lives into Jesus, that is a saving faith. And I just wanted to share that even before we jump into the passage and just to clarify contextually where we are in James and to understand that, the point, that point before we jump into the passage that we are studying today. So if you are not there yet, I'd like to invite everyone to open their Bibles to James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. The verses will be on the screen as well. But before that, let me just open up in a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word that you have revealed to us through your Holy Spirit, Lord. And also at this moment, I just want to pray for anyone who's just facing any health complications that they're going through right now, Lord, just thinking of various people. And I just pray that you would be with them as they go through these trials, Lord Jesus. I pray for your healing hand on anyone that might be going through these various uh, health complications, Lord. Pray for your healing hand, and I pray that you would be with them through as they go through these trials, Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us all today through the power of your Holy Spirit as we receive your word, and may anything that I say that is not of you just fall away like chaff in the wind, Lord. Speak to us today, we pray in your Son's name. Amen. All right, so we are in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. 
If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So, there are two main points that James is not making in this passage. First, James is not saying that works save us. Second, James is also not saying that faith plus works equals salvation. These are not the points that James is making. The main point that James is making is that faith in Jesus Christ saves us and that the evidence of that salvific faith is seen in how we live. Proof of our ev- proof, proof of our faith is evident. It is something that is clear and obvious in and through our words and our actions. Once again, the main point that James is making, I just want to hammer this out, is that it is faith in Jesus Christ that saves us, and that the evidence of salvific faith is seen in how we live. It is evident, and it is something that is clear and obvious. It is when someone looks at you and says, there is something different about you. I just don't know what it is. So we are going to take a look at what James means and what he is getting at. James does a great job of putting this passage into three sections, and the first part of the section that James talks about is how faith, he talks about Uh, That is faith that leads to actions. So it's verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. 
James first starts out by saying that if faith is not accompanied by action, it is dead. Faith is not a stagnant thing. When we come to faith in Jesus, it leads to action. James uses the illustration of saying, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. Brother or sister in the New Testament is referring to someone within the church, a brother or a sister in Christ. So, Suppose you have someone that is in meeting within your church and that they're going through an extremely hard time. They've hit a major rough patch within their lives. They have lost their ability to buy clothes and they have also lost their ability to acquire food. They are in a desperate situation. They are in a desperate need of assistance. In this instance, the response of the other Christians is possibly just a prayer of some kind where it's just like a go in peace, keep warm, well-fed. And James's response to this is clearly there needs to be action and not just a mere, uh, I pray that God would help find you some clothes and some food today. But this is just a partial continuation from what we learned last week. It's just a few verses before this of not showing favoritism to certain individuals, not showing favoritism towards people who are rich and not pushing aside people who are poor. As Pastor Dominic was saying last week, as chapter two articulates, right, it's not bad to be rich or to be a person of affluence, but favoritism towards those who have money is to not be tolerated in the church of Jesus Christ. And James is alluding back to that point here. This person James is speaking of, uh, this person James is speaking of can clearly, like they can tangibly help this fellow believer's practical needs, whether that be giving them clothes or food or even getting them to someone somewhere that can help provide for their physical needs. Understandably, it is not possible for one person to meet everyone's needs, but it is important to remember that even when we do not feel worthy of God's call or when we feel helpless, God promises to help us and to make us complete in every good work that aligns with his will. God is the one who will equip us with whatever is needed to carry out his divine purposes. Sometimes you might not have the correct tools or resources to meet someone's needs, but the point that James is making is that our saving faith in Jesus, the life that Jesus has called us from and the life that he has called us into is a living faith and is of one that propels us into action. Being the hands and feet of Jesus, listening and being obedient to his words and sometimes God uses us as willing vessels to answer someone else's prayer. Faith in Jesus spurs us into action. This leads us to our second point, that our faith in action leads to usefulness. So this is verses 18 to 20. But someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? 
In this section here, James is combating some erroneous ideologies. First, he is combating the notion of a works-based salvation. He's combating the idea that the things that you do will save you. James insists that no matter how much you do, no matter how hard you try, there's nothing that you can do that will earn you eternal salvation. That is the beginning portion of this passage. You have faith, I have deeds. The second point James is combating is that faith can exist without good deeds and that faith can exist without a changed life. Neither of these things are true. James' entire main point of this section is that the evidence of salvific faith is clear and evident to those who are around us because we have changed lives in Christ. People can see the changes in us through the works that we do through our changed lives. James combats both of these points by saying, I'll show you my faith by my deeds. This is the entire main point of this section. There's an analogy about a chair that is helpful within this context. So you can have one of two relationships with a chair, right? You could be standing beside the chair or you can sit down in the chair, right? So you can say to the chair, you're an awesome chair and I want to receive you as my personal chair. You are an awesome chair. You, so you can have a wonderful description of this chair, right? You can describe how, the, how great the chair would going to hold you and how wonderful the back that chair has and how great of a lumbar support that chair has, right? You can make a speech about this chair, but you can never actually, but you cannot sit down in the chair, right? So you can actually, you can not sit down and you cannot entrust the chair that it's actually going to hold you. So in the same way, it's not what you say to or about Jesus that's important. It's about the posture of your heart towards Jesus and your willingness to sit with him and serve him and entrust him as the Lord and Savior of your life. In this section of scripture, James also says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. James is speaking towards those that just intellectually or mentally attest to faith in Jesus. They might have the right doctrine and the right theology, but there's just clearly been no life transformation in their hearts. When James says that you believe that there is one God, he's referring to what is known as the Shema which is found in Deuteronomy 6. This is what the passage says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down, when you get up, and it just continues with that. But the Shema is a text that every Jewish person would have memorized. They would know that James is quoting this text. This is just a fascinating way that James is writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is weaving these texts together. 
James is saying, you believe that there is one God, but he didn't finish the rest of the Shema because he's showing them that they aren't loving the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Instead, James says, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. This is because faith is not about intellectually assenting that God exists or that Jesus existed. Satan and demons believe that God exists as well. You could even see in various instances in the gospel accounts. In Matthew 8, verses 28 and 29, Jesus restores two demon-possessed men. And what is the demon's response to Jesus? This is their response. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? And there are multiple instances of this happening in the New Testament. Demons knowing their theology and knowing doctrine and knowing scripture. So when Jesus, when he was fasting in the desert and Satan was coming up to him and talking to him, what was Satan quoting to Jesus? Yeah, he was, he was quoting scripture. Yep. But of course, Satan was misusing scripture and he was distorting it, which is why it is always so important for us believers to know our Bibles and to understand scripture in its proper context. It is so important for us as a church to be rooted in scriptures and the scriptures to always be the foundation where our church is rooted. But what is just as important is that we entrust ourselves, our whole hearts and lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We must believe and confess that the Lord our God is one and that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and strength. To close out this point, I'll repeat that James insists here that intellectual assent, or just mentally ascribing to the fact that God exists, is useless. Our lives must reflect his lordship in our thoughts, words, and deeds. And our final point will be how our usefulness leads to fruitfulness. Verses 24 to 26. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies, sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. In this portion of scripture, James brings up two Old Testament figures. He brings up Abraham and Rahab, in which the Jewish readers would be familiar with these characters. But if you don't know who these two characters are, Abraham was considered the father of the Jewish people. Hence why James calls him Father Abraham. I heard that he had many sons, and that many sons called him Father Abraham. 
If that song is stuck in your head, you are welcome. And if you don't know that song, uh, don't worry, you're not missing much. Father Abraham, amen, amen. My job here is to get songs stuck in people's heads. But anyway, Abraham was this highly revered person in the Jewish tradition. And the other story that, we, that he shares is of Rahab, who is a Gentile prostitute turned into biblical heroine. You can read Rahab's full story in Joshua 2, but the cliff notes is that Rahab helped Joshua's two spies hide out in Jericho under the stalks of flax in her roof. She had faith in God and acted on it. And who did Rahab become the mother of eventually? Boaz. And so uh, she was the mother of Boaz who married Ruth, and Rahab is actually a part of the royal lineage of Jesus. But for Abraham, his faith and works went together. And James brings this to light in the story of the binding of Isaac recorded in Genesis chapter 22. The story that James quotes here is the story where God tested Abraham's faith by telling him to sacrifice his only son as a burnt offering. Abraham, believing that God would provide a lamb for the offering, followed through all the way to the point of almost sacrificing his son. But God provided the lamb for the offering. And because Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. And the point that James is reinforcing here is that it was Abraham's belief in God that saved him and that his actions showed his belief. It is fascinating because James is just contrasting these two characters. So one, Abraham, he's the father of the Jewish faith. He is this highly revered person. And then on the other side of the coin, you have Rahab, who is a Canaanite, she's a Gentile, and she's a prostitute. So what James is saying here is that it doesn't matter who you are. You can be highly revered in society, or you can be the downtrodden outcast of society. When you place your saving faith in God, you are considered righteous before him and that the evidence of faith is seen in how you live. James then goes on to say that as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Charles Spurgeon provides a rich illustration. Uh, the sermon was preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in 1861. And this is just an illustration on this point right here. A tree has been planted out into the ground. Now, the source of life to that tree is the root. Whether it hath apples on it or not, the apples would not give it life. But the whole of the life of the tree will come from its root. If the tree stands in the orchard, and when the springtime comes, there is no bud, and when the summer comes, is no leafing, no fruit bearing, but the next year and the next, it stands there without bud or blossom or leaf or fruit. You would be, you would say that it is dead, and you are correct, it is dead. It is not that the leaves could have made it live, 
but that the absence of the leaves is proof that it is dead. The same goes for us. And Spurgeon goes on to say, if he hath life, that life must give fruits. If not fruits, works. If his faith has a root, but if there be no works, then depend upon it the inference that he is spiritually dead is certainly a correct one. So what Spurgeon is saying here is that we are the trees. It's not the fruit that makes the tree alive. But a tree with roots in Christ produces fruitfulness as a direct outsource of our salvation. The good news for us is that Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit, which enables us to do good works. When we abide in him, when we remain in him, John 15, we can do good works. But apart from him, we can do nothing. We can find some rich analogies and illustrations about Jesus as our master gardener and us as his foliage in the New Testament and also in the Old Testament literature as well. I found that Psalm 1 does a fantastic job of bringing this concept to life. In Psalm 1, we, we read that we are blessed when we t- take delight in the law of the Lord and when we meditate on it day and night. In this way, we become like trees planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season whose leaf does not wither and that whatever we do prospers. We are called to put down our roots into the ground intentionally by the master gardener, the source of life. Then we will yield fruit in season and not wither. So I have a question for you. Have you ever not watered a plant for a few days? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, let me tell you that I have neglected my fair share of plants. Sorry, mom and dad who are listening to this on the live stream. But let me tell you that leaves wither pretty quickly when you don't water them. Well, you water the ground, not the leaves themselves. I know that. Don't worry. But the leaves will wither if you do not water them. But if plants are watered again after a couple days of not being watered, they're often restored back to life. So have you ever heard of the Selaginella lepidophila? <laughs> it's, it's not a word from Dr. Seuss, but You may not have heard of that name unless you are a botanist or a person that loves to research plants. This plant is also known as the resurrection plant. It is found in arid places and primarily in desert regions. The resurrection plant can actually go several years without receiving a drop of water. The plant looks like it's a tumbleweed rolling around on the ground and blowing in whichever direction the wind is blowing. But it is all shriveled up and brown and appears dead. When the resurrection plant encounters a water source, whether that just be humidity in the air, rain, or stream, the plant sprouts to life. The plant unravels, opens up, and it turns green and begins the process of photosynthesis again. 
Even after several years of the plant not encountering a drop of water, it comes back to life. How many of us have gone days, months, and years without a single drop of water from our life source? The beautiful news of the scripture is that a person can be resurrected to new life even after going years without encountering a drop of water. When we turn to the Lord and delight in his scriptures, the Lord doesn't just give us water from the humidity in the air or drops of rain, but we are promised that we who delight in the law of the Lord are planted by streams of water. Those who sit down in the chair, those who entrust their lives to Jesus, acknowledge his lordship, trust him as savior, have faith in him and his salvific work for us. We'll never taste the sting of death, but we'll have eternal life through Jesus. And the evidence of that will be our changed lives being made new through the resurrection of Jesus. So let us pray to close as we transition into a time of communion, as we remember and focus on the work that Jesus did for us as a part of his sacrifice on the cross for our forgiveness of sins. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the salvation that is solely found in your name through the faith and the work that you have done for us on the cross. We pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds as we enter into this time of communion together as a community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.